Good morning and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thank you for joining us today for our webinar entitled Jerusalem on the Verge, Dispossession and Violence in Sheikh Jarrah. So the, the context for today's webinar is what we're seeing happening today on the ground in East Jerusalem, where the struggle in Sheikh Jarrah is again on center stage. And once again, Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah are facing imminent evictions approved by Israeli courts. And once again, Palestinians of Sheikh Jarrah are resisting efforts um, to remove them from their longtime homes. And they are once again being met with violence and repression from Israeli authorities and Israeli settlers. So to discuss this struggle and the dynamics in Jerusalem and how both are part of the broader struggle against escalating Israeli policies of Palestinian dispossession in Jerusalem and beyond, I am very happy and honored really to be joined by two experts and you can find their full bios on the Foundation for Middle East Peace's website. I'll go through them very briefly here. First, we have Asil Al-Bijji. Um, Asil is a legal researcher and advocacy officer at Al-Haq, which is the, the well-known Palestinian human rights organization. Asil was awarded the Ireland Palestine Scholarship Program to study at the Irish Center for Human Rights at National University of Ireland, Galway, completing her LLM in international human rights law in 2020. Uh, second, we have Badur Hassan, who is a Palestinian writer, a journalist, and a legal researcher based in Jerusalem. Her work has appeared in outlets like Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, Huffington Post, and Mada Masr, among others. So with that, we're gonna just dive right in. Um, we're gonna start off with the sort of breaking news. And Asil, I want to start with you. Today it, it was a big day in theory for the four families in Sheikh Jarrah who are facing dispossession um, with a, a legal date. This was a legal date for them when they had to do something. So can you fill us in on what that was about and if anything happened? And, and just sort of as background, the eviction of these four families was scheduled actually for May 2nd, but that was delayed by a court. And today was a date when it was one of the trigger dates for what happens next. So Asil, if you could jump in first with this background, thank you. Thank you, Lara. Um, as you said, yes, today is, um, but every day is an important day. Uh, for the families of Sheikh Jarrah, but uh, specifically, um, as you said, the families, four families consisting of 30 Palestinians in East Jerusalem were ordered to leave their homes by uh, Jerusalem uh, District Court uh, by 2nd of May, which was a couple of days ago, and they appealed this order uh, to the Supreme Israeli Supreme Court. And basically at the session uh, uh, on uh, a couple of days ago, the judge um, uh, gave the families a political, I would say this is a political offer uh, for them to accept uh, that the settler organization has rights, uh, ownership rights to the uh, lands of uh, uh, Sheikh Jarrah and so to be awarded or afforded a protected tenancy status and to pay rent for the settler organization. Now, immediately after, uh, and uh, the judge gave them um, uh, a period of two to three days to decide with the settler organization. Now, immediately after this uh, political offer, the, the families issued their positions that they uh, reject such a political offer since uh, we will talk more in detail about the specifics of the case of Sheikh Jarrah, but they rejected the offer 
And uh, as such, today uh, the decision uh, was delivered by the families to the uh, to the uh, Supreme Court, and the families uh, again postponed the um, the hearing till uh, the 10th of May in, in a couple of days. Uh, but I would like to mention here, like some important stuff about this Israeli court sessions, is that first of all, these courts apply Israeli domestic law unlawfully. Uh, which is uh, unlawfully transferred to the occupied East Jerusalem, and that these laws themselves are also discriminatory in their nature. These are part of Israel's apartheid regime. And in East Jerusalem, these laws are specifically used to dispossess and displace Palestinians furthermore. Uh, so this is uh, in, in terms of the laws that we're talking about that the courts are uh, in, imposing. But also the courts uh, themselves are much, very much discriminatory and untransparent, uh, uh, given the experience of the Sheikh Sharrah families, but also with all Jerusalemites who have been experiencing uh, a discriminatory um, uh, treatment by these courts. And I would like to say that when these families, uh, Sheikh Jarrah families, resort to the to the Israeli courts, they're not acknowledging. Uh, or trusting these courts, but rather they are uh, uh, trying to exhaust all the, the, the means that they have in order to, uh, at this time, just to save time even, uh, to have some time for them to, to be, uh, to have the right fulfilled. And in some cases also the, the courts have, uh, like evictions have happened while the courts were, uh, cases were pending. Uh, maybe Budur has a first-hand experience working since she, she has uh, been working in East Jerusalem uh, longer than that with the Shamasna family. Uh, in 2017, the, the uh, family was evicted while still an appeal was pending uh, in East Jerusalem. This is uh, also in Sheikh Jarrah, another part of the neighborhood. So I, I think it's important to keep all these things in mind while we're talking about the Israeli courts in, in occupied East Jerusalem. Thanks, Lucy. And, and and just, I mean, maybe we can talk about this more in, in the rest of the conversation somewhere, but I think for people, I, I think my colleagues put something into the chat about this, so you can read about the legislation. But I mean, fundamentally, the laws that are being applied were written to um, to dispossess Palestinians. I mean, they're written to, to enable Israeli Jews to reclaim land, a right of return to lands from pre-48 or pre-67. And they are written to prevent Palestinian claims being made. Um, so, I mean, there's that, that fundamental structural piece of it that, that works that way. I'd love if one of you could talk more about that as we, as we go on. Um, Bazur, over to you. So, and, and Asil just referred to this, you know, what's happening this week um, is not the only urgent case in Sheikh Shara. Can you explain what is happening with the additional cases of dispossession that are looming? And, and here, I mean, I'm thinking about the, the seven families that are facing August eviction, I believe it is. Um, you know, talk about the larger battle um, unfolding, which isn't a new battle, it's been going on for decades, but what's unfolding today between Palestinians and the settlers and the Israeli state and the courts. Yeah, so as Asil said, we are talking about four families that were supposed to be, I will say, displaced on the 2nd of May. Uh, in addition to these four families, an additional three families are also facing uh, displacement orders for August. 
because in February 2021, when the Israeli district court approved the decision of the magistrate court to displace all these families, we had two cases or we have two groups of cases almost just separated by a couple of weeks. In both cases, the district court approved, upheld the decision previously issued by the magistrate courts. So, and in many cases, we're talking about very similar cases in nature. Uh, we're talking about refugee families who've been living in Sheikh Jarrah since 1956 and who've been embroiled in a decades-long legal battle and who've been living, hovering under this threat of displacement for decades. In cases, you have children who've lived their entire lives with this weapon of displacement just um, directed at their chests, really, and have known nothing but court date, court, court dates, and when the court is expecting expected to displace us. So this is the wider context. So when we're talking about these specific three fam four families that will be displaced on that will be displaced soon, and the un, the additional three families, and in addition we have the Sabah family whose case is a little bit different. So it's not being heard in a, along with these seven families, but they're also part of the, of the case. So we're talking about more than 70 people, including many children uh, who are facing the threat of displacement as we speak. And, um, and unlike previous cases, when the Israeli settler organization, specific, specifically Nahlat Shimon, which is registered in the United States and received exemptions from paying taxes, uh, certain exemptions, sorry, uh, as a, a supposedly charitable organization, because it's registered as a charitable organization in the United States. So when Nahlat Shimon comes and displaces families, they usually kind of have a, a typical pattern of displacing one family at a time. And since 2009, with the exception of the Chamasni case, which happened in 2017, which is a bit different because Chamasnis are were not refugee families, and they were in a different part of Sheikh Jarrah, not in the Karmel Jauni area. All the cases we're talking about, they're all in the Karmel Jauni area. Uh, but the, the, apart from the Chamasni case, we've seen no uh, displacement since 2009. And it was believed that partly due to political pressure, also largely due to the mobilization by residents, by Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah. But now the difference is that the settler organization, Nahlat Shamaun, is not really waiting anymore. They really want to do this displacement by droves. And this is one major difference between what we're seeing now and what we've seen uh, years before that we're talking about a huge number of families, which, which means that the whole dynamics is changing because we're not just talking about an individual family. We're talking literally about entire families, dozens of residents, entire lives being torn apart from where they have lived for decades. Thank you. And I get, before we go sort of more into the, the broader story, I want to continue focusing on where things are today. And Badur, I want to stick with you here. A lot of us, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. I know around the world, a lot of us are sort of glued to, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, seeing what's happening on the ground. I mean, this is, you know, for all the negatives of social media, this is a, a positive. We're seeing it. Can you 
talk about, I know you are spending a lot of time in Sheikh Jarrah. I know you were there. I think you're there almost every night. Can you talk about what these nightly protests are? You know, these are being led by Palestinians, the families in Sheikh Jarrah, I know are, are, are close to, from what I see on, on social media, deeply involved in leading this. And can you talk about that role that they're playing and the retaliation that you're seeing on the ground from Israeli authorities? Since the start of Ramadan, uh, the Muslim month of fasting, and basically, which means um, two weeks into April, there have been daily nightly clashes, let's say, between Palestinian youth, specifically in Damascus Gate, and protest at Israeli measures meant of blocking people from arriving at the, uh, st- uh, the steps of Damascus Gate. And the momentum that these protests have created in Damascus Gate didn't just stay there. We all, all, the, all the youngsters who go to the protests in Damascus Gate, many of whom had no prior political involvement or direct political involvement in the sense that they didn't go to protests because when we talk about politics, politics really infiltrates every single aspect of Palestinian lives. So we don't really have the luxury not to be political in the broader sense of the word. So due to the calls made by families in Sheikh Jarrah and the massive effort they have played both locally in mobilizing and in inviting people and calling on people, staging even concerts, in Sheikh Jarrah, by taking advantage of the fact that unlike in other months, Jerusalem usually sleeps early, but in Ramadan, it changes. So people stay up for late. It's a very public month. Um, Many things, many activities are held after 8, 9 p.m. So the families in Sheikh Jarrah very cleverly took advantage of this fact and started calling on people to join them, to watch shows, to as a, as a statement, political statement that we're staying here. Uh, um, in uh, retaliation fest, you'd hear settlers starting uh, play loud music, very annoying music from their uh, speakers, from the houses that they have occupied, particularly the house of Nabil al-Kurd, uh, so this is one of the centers in which they play their very loud and very annoying music in order to hijack any attempt of Palestinians to gather, to protest, to do even the most civic activity, which is just sitting there having their iftar, which is the meal of breaking the fast together publicly in Sheikh Jarrah. And especially in the last week, this has developed. So instead of just holding these evening uh, gatherings, the, the momentum, as I said, uh, went, morphed from these just daily evening protests in Damascus Gate and reached Sheikh Jarrah, particularly because there have been attempts to block Palestinian youth from reaching Damascus Gate. So it's instead of just going back to their homes, people started joining in and protesting. In addition, we've seen also, and this is one of the most really lively, inspiring things about the protests, that you don't just have Palestinians from Jerusalem coming, coming and Palestinian from neighboring uh, villages in Jerusalem, like Esawiye, like Sharfat, like Wadi al-Jos. You also have Palestinians from Haifa, from all over historic Palestine, from Haifa, from Imm al-Fahim, from Taibu, which is, these are areas in northern, some in southern or northern historic Palestine, coming, some of whom just using public transport and coming, many university students, college students, who are coming and joining and you also have people and the really beautiful thing is how this translates 
into the chanting of people. So you have chants that are uh, symbolic to some area of Palestine being repeated in Sheikh Jarrah. You have all the symbolic, uh, the symbolic and iconic chant slogans, the famous songs of uh, th that are sung. Some of them that were adapted to the case of Sheikh Jarrah. And, and, and this is how Palestinians started resisting these attempts, especially that there was a massive protest on Saturday, which gathered many Palestinians from all over historic Palestine came. And after that, it continued every night despite repression. And when we talk about repression by Israel, we talk about sound use of sound grenades by the Israeli border police. Obviously, the use of the skunk uh, truck, which is the foul smell water. Usually it, it was first used in, used in Damascus Gate and they transferred the, the, this uh, truck that throws fires the skunk water. Uh, they spray the homes with skunk, they spray protesters with skunk uh, and on certain occasions they also even use uh, tear gas. Uh, so these are the ways and obviously with the horses and whenever you start standing, singing, and even raising the Palestinian flag, because in Jerusalem, the very action, the very act of raising the Palestinian flag is perceived by Israeli occupation police as a threat to their very, their very fake sovereignty over this area. So whenever the Palestinian flag is raised, you will have the uh, hordes of Israeli soldiers attacking whoever who's raising the flag, brutally beating protesters. And we've seen some of the scenes in where Palestinian protesters, unarmed protesters were uh, beaten brutally, were harassed, were uh, and were detained. Uh, so this is this is the way it, it has been, and and I think that it will continue today. Also after iftar, we will be gathering in Jarrah and also every day just to keep to carry on to keep this momentum going, and to say that the case of Sheikh Jarrah is not just the case of one neighborhood. It's not even the case of one city, which is Jerusalem. It's a Palestinian case because it's a paradigmatic of the entire Palestinian struggle for libera liberation and decolonization. Thank you. Asid, can you add on to that a little bit in terms of what you think these protests can accomplish, what the goals of the protests are, both in a limited sense on Shekhtara and more broadly? And maybe, I don't want to skip ahead too far, but, you know, how you see this, you know, there, there have been periodic, there have been moments in history, including one not that long ago, the, the grassroots um, protest against the magnetometers on the, on the Haram al-Sharif, where you've actually seen real impacts when there's been grassroots or even taking down the barriers at Damascus Gate. Um, is this something where that kind of victory might be replicated or is it somehow a different test? Um, I think what Wudur said in regards to how these protests uh, not, are not only about Sheikh Jarrah and not only about Jerusalem, They're, they represent the anger by the Palestinian youth who have been suppressed and denied from the right to expression and the right to exercise the right self-determination. So now we are seeing a great mobilization, uh, particularly by Palestinian youth. And as Budur also said, we're, we're seeing Palestinians uh, from, uh, from what is now considered Israel also joining these uh, protests. 
And in this, uh, I would say that the goal of, uh, of the message of these protests is, first of all, to stop the evictions themselves, but overall to protest what Israel has always been doing, which is uh, in Jerusalem specifically to empty the city from, from its Palestinian residents and to ensure, as they publicly state shamelessly, that they want to ensure the demographic uh, composition of the city is in favor of Israeli Jewish domination. So they, various, like forced eviction and Sheikh Jarrah is just one example because every single neighborhood of Jerusalem is under uh, the threat of displacement and dispossession under various uh, pretexts, legal, uh, because uh, Israel does practice uh, dispossession and displacement under its uh, rule of law. And rule of law here does not equal justice. It's it, the, the Israeli discriminatory laws are designed, as we said, to displace and dispossess uh, Palestinians. And so these protests are a sign and a message uh, in order to uh, stop all these uh, uh, settler colonial policies in East Jerusalem, but also elsewhere, because we've seen in the past couple of months also protests in, in Imm al-Fahim, in the Gaza Strip, under various pretexts and in, in different forms uh, in historic Palestine, these policies to displace Palestinians and to have in historic Palestine minimum uh, a number of Palestinians as possible are taking various forms, but the Palestinian youth have the same uh, same message, which is to ensure that their land uh, remain uh, remain with them and that they are liberated from the Israeli colonization. I would like to uh, to add one thing regarding the efficacy of these protests. Uh, I, I like the fact that you brought up the successful uh, sit-in that took place in 2017 uh, against the installation of the metal detectors in Al-Haram al-Sharif. And uh, really, it's, it's very similar. It's really, all the time, it's when we saw the way the youth in Damascus Gate removed the barriers and the barricades, it really was brought back the memories of those days in 2017, when the youth also managed to uh, march through the gates and open and through Babhutta Gate and in their thousands, even carrying some martyrs' parents on their shoulders. And really th th that moment, to, although the makeup of the protesters was a bit different in 2017 to what it was, uh, in the Damascus Gate protests, but it really was a reminiscent. It was also reminiscent in 2014 in the protests that Jerusalem saw after the of the brutal killing of Muhammad Abu Khdir in Sharfat. Uh, we've seen also some protests in October 2015. One thread that unifies these protest movements, these many of which were really spontaneous, leader, largely leaderless, is that that they are about reclaiming the public space. And in Jerusalem, it's a big thing because you don't really, one of the efforts that have been really strengthened by Israel is the way to control, to dominate the public space and to just prevent Palestinians from expressing themselves politically, publicly, artistically in the public space. So it's always been a battle over the public space, over who dominates the public space, who controls it, because it's also applies to who controls the narrative and whose voices are heard. So, and in, in a sense, the protests in Sheikh Jarrah is an extension. Now, 
we're not naive to think that just couple, I mean, couple of hundreds protesting might prevent Israel from uh, carrying on its its uh, displacement plan. We know that we we know the power and the might of the Israeli army, the Israeli police, in terms of sheer brute force. And we know that it's absolutely asymmetric because the most we can, uh, I mean, uh, use is in addition to our voices is that for the youth to throw stones or bottles or, or and that's it really. So it's not even asymmetric, it's not even symmetric uh, in this sense. But the really important thing is that it, it's emboldening more and more people to join. And it's making this case a public case So it's absolutely putting pressure. And also, in a sense, it's also exposing the fragility of the Israeli army because because despite its sheer brute force and its power, when you see that these soldiers are scared of a flag, and when you see that the very fact that we're standing there and singing is just enough to scare them and to bring uh, all these uh, special unit forces and border police and use all these weapons it also gives us more uh, it's it's even it's hard to say but it it inspires even more courage among people because if you're so fragile if you're so weak then you you can't really intimidate us despite all that you've done but we definitely know that just these protests are not enough. They need to be joined and backed up by genuine pressure, pressure that is not just uh, lip service, that supports these protests. But we also simultaneously realize that nothing will be changed and no displacement will be prevented unless these protests continue and manage to gather steam onward. Thank you. That's a very powerful statement, I think. And It, it, it's, it's, I feel it. I'm inspired hearing you, hearing you say it. Um, I want to take a step back and go into the context a little bit. The, and Bedur, I want to stay with you for a moment. Can we talk about, assuming that everyone who's on this call is seeing what's happening in the news, I don't assume that everyone knows the basics of Sheikh Jarrah and, and the people that live there, particularly the people who are under pressure now to be, to be evicted. So can you talk about the population of Sheikh Jarrah, who lives there? How long have they lived there? How did they get there? Um, and, and of course, Sheikh Jarrah was part of the area of East Jerusalem that was annexed by Israel illegally in 1967. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about what that meant for Palestinians who were already living in Sheikh Jarrah. So I will probably start from one story, but I think it's her story is the story that um, is common to so many families in Sheikh Jarrah. She is Rifqa al-Kurd. Uh, she passed away last year uh, at, over, at the age of over 100 years old. She was uh, a buoyant, very passionate uh, young woman in 1948 when in April, so in, in days like these, she and her family were displaced from the coastal city of Haifa. And Rifq al-Kurd moved to Jerusalem first. And in 1956, like the other uh, 28 families, uh, she became obviously a refugee, like uh, internally displaced 
but she was unlike other families who were displaced and remained in historic Palestine, uh, in, in the areas occupied by Israel and then turned and called Israel. She moved to Jerusalem, which was then to East Jerusalem, which was then under the Jordanian control. So in 1956, UNRWA, the United Nations Refugee uh, uh, Refugee Organization for, uh, for Work, the Agency for Work and Refugees, uh, and the Jordanian government, they leased this piece of land and they agreed, the, the family, the refugee families agreed to give up their refugee card in exchange of uh, housing. And this has to do also with the terrible housing crisis that afflicted many uh, Palestinian refugees and many, and, and it was a very difficult decision to make. And it's not an easy, when, when a refugee is asked about to make this decision between whether to stay a refugee or to accept a land and housing, it's very easy to put, I mean, I, I've heard this from many people that they regret that their parents had taken their decision. So obviously it's impossible to put yourself in, in their shoes. They had so many uh, things to take into account, but then these families decided that it's better to live stably and in, to have a house of your own rather than just stay and live in a refugee camp for the entirety of their lives. So these families, these 28 families, agreed to uh, exchange their refugee status for housing. The, according to the articles of the agreement between Jordan, Jordan, the UNRWA, and the families, these families were supposed to get ownership over the uh, land and over the houses after three years from constructing and building these houses. This never materialized. Obviously, in 1967, Israel completed its occupation of all of Jerusalem. So this part, the, all of Jerusalem now is under Israeli control uh, and occupation and subsequent annexation also, including these refugee families that lived in Sheikh Jarrah. Immediately after the occupation in 1967, one of the first homes that was were occupied was the Shanti family home because they were outside of Palestine at the time. So uh, they declared it as abandoned property. Abandoned means that they prevented people from returning to this home and took over it to pave the way for a series of displacement. Starting from the early 1970s, Israel decided that this area, the, the claim was that these, the land on which these houses were built, that in the end of the 19th century, they were sold to uh, Jewish families living there. Uh, there is no, this is one big contested issue regarding ownership. And the issue of ownership, legally speaking, I don't want to embroil you in the sophisticated legal technicalities, but the issue of ownership has not been sealed in the court. So there has not been a decision. What we know is that the, the responsible for absentee property registered the lands in Sheikh Jarrah in the name of settler organizations, based on what we Palestinians argue, based on false documents that have not proven. And in fact, uh, the families have brought documents from Istanbul, from Turkey, that show that some of these uh, documents that the settlers brought are not are, are forged documents. But it, it's a very, it, it's a massive issue. And I think one of the successes in a sense of the settlers was to transform this issue from a struggle over land to merely bureaucratic uh, property, real estate issue when it's not. 
the real reason that these settler organizations led by Nahlachi Ma'on right now want to take advantage and want to control these homes in Sheikh Jarrah is the strategic position of Sheikh Jarrah. It's the gateway. It's, it's in the north of the old city, it's north to the old city. It's a very strategic area. And it's uh, also, it's kind of one of the, it, it connects East to West as well. So it's a strategic, just like, for example, Silwan, it's a very strategic area because it's very close to Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the strategic place of, of Sheikh Jarrah is the reason that's pushing settlers to try and dominate it. And then obviously you can always use whatever pretext that the law allows you to use in order to take advantage of the uh, loopholes that you have in order to control these houses and this land. And since the 19, since 1970s and, and specifically since the early 1980s, because some families not knowing the Israeli law and tricked by one Israeli lawyer, because at the time Palestinian lawyers were not allowed, were on strike, and they didn't rec recognize the legitimacy of the Israeli courts, so they didn't represent Palestinian families. So one of the Israeli lawyers uh, compelled some of the families, not all the families, 18 families, to sign documents that uh, say that they accept the claim of ownership made by the settlers, and they, they agree to be considered protected tenants, which means just Pay, uh, pay rent to the settler organization. And, and the problem with that, that agreement is that those who signed it did not really recognize what it entailed because they couldn't speak Hebrew, because they trusted the lawyer and it turned out that they were tricked. And all of these sophistications and legal mishmash led us to where we are or where we started off at the early 2000s when uh, efforts by the by Nahlat Shimon, which is the main uh, settler organization, which is also government supported, or to make it clear, so just it's not just one charitable organization uh, it left to its own devices. Uh, it's, it's left us with the first displacements that took place in 2008 and 2009. We probably, many of us remember the case of Um, um Kamil Al-Kurd, whose husband was, whose husband was passed, it was, uh, ha has passed away during these uh, months of threats and who built, set up a tent to protest uh, the, uh, the evictions and displacement. We remember the family of Rifq Al-Kurd, whose uh, sons, whose sons, built a house in, two, uh, in 2000, he was prevented from living in that house because the Israeli court said that this extension of the house is illegal because he didn't uh, receive a permit. Obviously, the vast majority of Palestinians in Jerusalem who apply for permits, their uh, applications are turned down. So between 2000 and 2008, Nabil couldn't even enter the room he expanded, uh, he expanded and added to his uh, home. His, uh, his children had to watch this newly constructed room that they, they, did, they didn't even have the key to it. They couldn't even enter it. And suddenly, in 2008-2009, when the Israeli settlers took over the house, they managed to enter this part of the home, and they managed for years since then to share this home, which Nabil built, which Nabil and his family spent the, their entire work, labor, and sweat in order to build this house. They have to contend with watching settlers, especially settler youth. It's very important to make it clear that the majority of those who live in Sheikh Jarrah as Israeli settlers, they're, they're, they're 
paradigmatic colonists. Their youth, their arm to the teeth, they're very dangerous. They harass the citizens. So instead, in addition to living and sharing the breath that they, the air that these people breathe, they also harass them on a daily basis. And in addition to Al-Kurd family, also Al-Ghawi family, uh, also were displaced. And as uh, as he mentioned, the case of Shamasni, although he's not a refugee, but also he was one of those he lived since the 60s in Sheikh Jarrah and who was displaced in, 19, in, in 2017. So this is the basis of the, the case. I think Asil will talk more about the disparity and about how you live in two parallel worlds in which on the one hand, you have Palestinians, internally displaced Palestinian refugees who have been displaced from their own land since 1948, including families, as I said, Rifq al-Kurd from Haifa and families who came from Yafa and families who are from Al-Baqa, which is in the Western part of Jerusalem. And they can't go back to their homes and they are not granted the right to return to their homes. And on the other hand, you have on fuzzy and on unproven proper uh, ownership claims, you have Israelis who just, the, the very fact that they claim that they've been, that their land has been there since the 19th century, the Israeli law allows them to go, supposedly to go back or to take over the land. And I think Asil can talk about these, how you have this system, this legal segregation, this legal apartheid system in which one one population based on ethnicity and religion have the right to go back to their homes and the other doesn't. Thanks, Padur. Actually, Asil, I think that's actually a really good follow-on. We covered a lot of what I want to ask you. You know, the issue of law has come up over and over so far. And one of the things, I remember someone telling me this 25 years ago, when understanding Israeli rule in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, is the difference between rule of law and rule by law. And then in this context, Israeli law is used in order to implement what the Israeli policy is. It's, and that's not rule of law. To the extent that, I mean, what's always what's striking to me listening to both of you is thinking about the lengths that the Israeli government has gone to legalize illegal settler construction to the extent of literally suspending even the pretense of rule of law to say, fine, you took it illegally, it's privately ordered, we're still gonna let you keep it because it's, it's more humane, right? It's the argument that it's inhumane to ask settlers to leave even if they built illegally, while the other hand is doing everything to dispossess and displace Palestinians saying, sorry, it's the law, there's nothing we can do. Um, so, you know, following up on what Badur said, and we've seen the Human Rights Report, which, you know, highlights the growing, um, the growing international recognition or normalization of the term apartheid when we're talking about this. Can, can you talk, a, talk about that? Talk about how that framework applies or how it should be used to understand what we're seeing today in Sheikh Jarrah and, and you know, this is an opportunity also if you want to talk a little bit, for instance, what's happening in Silwan, where there's um, a massive looming displacement happening. It's not just, just Sheikh Shara. I think these are uh, excellent questions to go into the broader uh, context of what enables such evictions. And I would like to start by saying you, you mentioned apartheid, and indeed uh, Israel is an apartheid regime, but I think. Um, also to clearly and uh, specifically illustrate the Israeli regime as it is. Apartheid is also a symptom of settler colonialism because 
Israel, when, when it was established in 1948, was established on the logic of the elimination of the Palestinian people and replacing it with uh, Jewish uh, settlers. So this is what uh, the, the frame that captures what is the Israeli regime. Now, uh, Israel, in order to enforce further uh, dispossession after the Nakba or the 1948 war uh, of the Palestinian people and to ensure that the Palestinians uh, are not returned to their homes and that there are further displacement and dispossession, it enacted, as you said, a series of laws. Now, these laws, when we look at them, uh, they, they, um, they cause injustice to the Palestinian people. And one such law that affects the people of Sheikh Jarrah, but many other Palestinians, uh, is the 1950 uh, so-called absentee property law, which st states that uh, Palestinian refugees and Palestinian, uh, Palestinian internally displaced uh, uh, during the uh, 1948 Nakba uh, are, uh, are uh, like, uh, they are considered absentees, although under another set of laws, citizenship laws and entry laws, they are denied their right to return. I myself, uh, I'm a descendant of a refugee from, uh, east, uh, from the western part of Jerusalem, from uh, this one of the 500 uh, displaced and uh, demolished villages uh, called Lifta. Uh, so I personally not only don't have the access to reclaim the property uh, of, uh, of my, uh, my grandparents, but I also don't have access to even enter the city of Jerusalem because of other policies uh, including the, the annexation wall and the permit system. Uh, but basically, just to focus on this law, uh, this law allocates all the properties of the refugees uh, for uh, uh, eligible, they are eligible for confiscation by the state. Uh, and if you see the contradictory that also Boudour highlighted, you have another set of laws that only allows Israeli Jews to uh, so-called the right the, the so-called law uh, uh, sorry sorry law of return, which allows any Jew in the world to enter Israel and to be granted citizenship and nationality upon entry. Sometimes these Jews don't even uh, if you want to go case by case, they're not even uh, Jewish in religion. But anyhow, these Jewish people from all over the world are allowed to enter Israel and to be uh, allowed the, uh, the the Israeli nationality. Uh, now, on the other hand, we have, for example, the uh, 19, uh, this is a very specific, uh, a law specific to the cases of Sheikh Jarrah also, uh, that has allowed the evictions going on right now. It's, uh, it was passed in 1970, uh, specifically to East Jerusalem, and it states that uh, only Israeli Jews are allowed to pursue claims to property uh, that they alleged to have owned in East Jerusalem before the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. And so pursuant to this law, uh, the, these uh, settler organizations have managed to secure land ownership, as you said, in Karm in, uh, in area, and as Budur said, in Karm area and Sheikh Jarrah, but also in other parts of Jerusalem, uh, specifically in Batm al-Hawa and uh, in Silwan, uh, in occupied East Jerusalem also, we have a plot of land that have been secured, uh, transferred to a settler organization, Atarit Kohanim, in 2001 or two. And since then, the settler organization have also been filing eviction lawsuits against the uh, families in Silwan and Batn al-Hawa. And also, uh, now the struggle is, is very much similar because the people of Silwan are also 
Most of them, 80% of them are refugees, if not from 1948, but from the 67 war. So we're talking about a double displacement and dispossession uh, experienced by the Palestinian people. We're talking about a very psychologically and also financially uh, exhausting uh, struggle within these Israeli courts that, that are very discriminatory and are enforcing discriminatory laws that constitute the, the foundation of uh, Israel's apartheid regime because Israel is not only basing its displacement and dispossession on laws, but also it has been uh, uh, conducting various policies to ensure the maintenance of its apartheid regime, including the strategic fragmentation of the Palestinian people. Now we see Palestinians uh, in, in, in uh, abroad, uh, refugees and in exiles are denied the right to return as a first category. Palestinian in the Gaza Strip under a severe and harsh blockade for above 13 years now. Uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, um, in the occupied West Bank, uh, facing a military rule, and, uh, and also Palestinian in East Jerusalem as a, also an occupied uh, territory, but uh, facing another set of laws with the same goal, uh, as I mentioned, including uh, the, the, the policy, for example, of residency verification, where they're not allowed uh, to, uh, they, they're considered uh, uh, like, uh, they, they are awarded a permanent residency status, which is a, uh, in many cases uh, revoked under very broad uh, criteria, including if they don't, uh, if they don't succeed in proving that the so-called center of their life is in the city of Jerusalem, then they are at threat of losing their residency uh, status. In other cases, they are asked to uh, to um, to uh, to breathe, I'm sorry I the English word is missing from me but they uh, to swear allegiance for the occupying power because they are uh, uh, because they are protesting or resisting the illegal policies of the Israeli occupation and so many Palestinians I think 14,000 Palestinians have lost their residency status uh, uh, because of this policy. Uh, and uh, the, the last category of this strategic fragmentation policy is Palest Palestinian citizens of Israel who are also facing discriminatory measures and policies by Israel, uh, including forcible transfer, for example, in the Naqab area, but also uh, another uh, discriminatory uh, allocation of services. And we're seeing this very explicitly and shamelessly in laws that state uh, of the Israeli state that say that only Jewish people have the right to self-determination. Uh, and so this is uh, the, the second method, but the third method, which is also very relevant to the what we started, is uh, how Israel suppresses Palestinians since its, its inception in 1948. Any form of resistance, including to raise your Palestinian flag, is considered a criminal act. And uh, this policy of suppression includes many acts, including the use of force. Yesterday, a Palestinian boy was killed in Nablus. Uh, uh, he's, I think, 15 years old uh, by Israeli occupying forces. This is not a, a unique incident. This is unfortunately an incident that Palestinians have to uh, accept as the norm. Uh, the use of force, the arbitrary detention. Uh, currently in Sheikh Jarrah, many Palestinians are being detained. And as Boudour said, we have seen uh, in the protests many Palestinians coming from inside the Green Line, from Haifa and so on, also in detention centers where 
for a preliminary, preliminary uh, monitoring by al haq we can say that uh, there are beatings uh, by uh, in these detention centers. Uh, further investigation, uh, like torture, is not something weird by uh, to to. For torture is another means by to suppress Palestinian resistance, and it's sanctioned by Israeli courts. Uh, I don't want to go along with this, but just to highlight that Israel uses all these different methods to suppress the Palestinian will to resist uh, the illegal and ongoing uh, colon settler colonial policies. Uh, and this uh, proves uh, a third uh, an element of the crime of apartheid, which is the intention uh, to maintain an apartheid regime. Thanks. And that's that's very powerful. So. Following up on that, Badur, with that as the context, and you spoke very in, in a way that was very inspiring earlier. Um, you know, Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah and beyond Sheikh Jarrah, but we're focusing on Sheikh Jarrah today, have, have long resisted um, occupation in Sheikh Jarrah. They've long resisted efforts at eviction. Um, in the past, those have not been long-term successful efforts. Talk about why this resistance how it looks now, how it is different, how it feels different than, than what we've seen in the past. You know, when we think sometimes this is, this can be a bit of a risky question to answer really, because sometimes you can be easily caught in the heat of the moment. And then we tend to think whatever we've living through now is, is different from anything we've lived through before. And we have this kind of, uh, our memory tends to flag certain things and to be selective. So I don't want to say how it's different from what you've, from what we've seen before. Rather, I want to think indifferently how it accumulates and it builds on what we've seen before. And I think this is really important because when we tell the Palestinian story, we tend, and justly, obviously, and justifiably, to focus on what Israel does to Palestinians. There have been so many, I mean, Asil enumerated them so well, all these, I mean, we're talking about there is certain hierarchy of oppression. The only common thing is that it applies to all Palestinians, even if different methods applies to certain part of the population. And there is this very well buttressed architecture of oppression that has been solid, that has been backed, supported by the Israeli judiciary and enforced by different sectors of the arms of the Israeli states, including their proxy, because we believe that Settler, uh, the, the same settlers who two weeks ago marched through the streets of Jerusalem and screamed death to Arabs, they're not a and they're not an anom anomaly. They're supported, they're backed, they're legitimized by the Israeli state. And in a sense, they do the state's dirty work. So the things that the state does not want to be seen doing, it prefers that the settlers, the hell-top set youth, for instance, or the uh, or these uh, uh, very religious extremists do in the streets in order, because they don't have these, the same political diplomatic considerations that the state arms have. So this is, as I said, Asil went through the, these tools, but this is just one part of the story. The other part is that since 1948, throughout Palestine, there had been so many forms of Palestinian resistance, starting from the Palestinians who lived in 19, who stayed on their lands, uh, including 
our families that stayed in their land and they were not successfully displaced in 1948. And they had lived to live under military rule from 1948 to 1966. So even though they were completely cut off from the entirety of the Palestinian people, and they were basically destroyed emotionally, physically, uh, they were uprooted, even though they stayed on their land, they were uprooted because they lost their uh, natural extension, they still managed to go through to, to lead protests. We saw the protest, the land, the historic land day protests in 1976, which Palestinians did in order to protest against mass conf land confiscation and to assert their Palestinian identity despite Israeli attempts to domesticate them, to treat them as Israel, to call them Arab Israelis, and by that denying and erasing their Palestinian identity, we've seen the first intifada, which was the first major mobilization within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip that was popularly led by Palestinians and whose heritage and whose legacy continues to inspire us until today through its songs, through its icons, through its uh, tactics and stra the strategies employed, even though the, the Palestinian society in its nature has changed drastically after the Oslo Accords and after all the efforts by Israel and the Palestinian Authority, I have to say, in order to suppress Palestinian resistance. And we've seen the Second Intifada and we've seen all the movements we've talked about uh, in Jerusalem, starting from uh, piecemeal activism and just cultural activism through the streets of Jerusalem to reclaim and to stress the identity of Jerusalem as a Palestinian city and starting from the protests currently taking place throughout Palestine, historic Palestine, against uh, internal violence, which is legit supported directly by Israel and the complicity of the Israeli police, which is intent on fragmenting and uh, dividing the Palestinian people and uh, stripping them of their uh, natural, as I said, natural expansion and natural environment, and just creating a ghettoized communities in which Palestinians throughout Palestine have less and less land, less and less space, have absolutely no future horizons. So all of this can be seen and can be manifested in the anger, in the outrage we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah right now, in the anger and the outrage that we saw at the start of Ramadan through the youth who were fearlessly and tirelessly throwing stones at the Israeli police, even though they probably are not explicitly politically motivated. They don't use the terminology that many of us who are affiliated perhaps, or who have more, I mean, who have been engaged, more politically engaged, they might use different terminology, but it's not about terminology. There is a more powerful vocabulary that one you say, and it's how you act. And, and this process of recovering and reclaiming the consciousness is one, we, we tend to talk a lot about the visible forms of violence that Israel employs. And there are so many of them. There are so many crude forms of violence. Israel through, uh, fires missiles at Gaza. Israel destroys dem and demolishes homes in Jerusalem and forces Palestinians in Jerusalem to demolish their own homes. Israel raids uh, entire villages in the West Bank at night and terrorizes families and terrorizes children through these detention raids. These are just one few examples of the visible forms of oppression that Israel has used. But there is a less visible form of violence, more which we 
can say invisibilized or something violence that is made invisible. It's not just through bureaucracy. It's an attempt to domesticate the Palestinian people and to eradicate their political and national consciousness and to to make for, uh, impose this alienation on them. And this has never been clearer than in Jerusalem because of the status of Palestinians in Jerusalem as, as permanent residents, because they have been uh, separated from Palestinians in this in the West Bank through the annexation and expansion wall, through the uh, checkpoints and the barriers, and the, also the psychological separation through the imposition of Israeli school curriculum on these uh, children, through forcing these people to just go to the Israeli uh, work, uh, work for, workforce uh, and to work as manual lab laborer in Israeli settlements on in the western part of Jerusalem, and all sorts of attempts to eradicate their consciousness. Despite this, Israel always kind of um, has this uh, banks on the fact that it has successfully domesticated Palestinian youth in Jerusalem. What we see is that one stone, one, one event, even small though it might sound, is enough to kind of... Uh, um, change, dismantle the smith of a palace, of a people who have been subjugated, of a people who have been pacified. And this, whenever whenever an explosion of so-called explosion happens, and this bubble of Israeli security and relative quiet bursts, many people act as if they were surprised. We've seen this in 2015, in October, in the uprising of October, after so many individual attacks by Palestinians. And these, these uprisings have different manifestations. Many people ask, why did this happen? And they act surprised. And now we've seen, we're seeing this in Sheikh Jarrah. Why suddenly? Because Sheikh, these things have been happening in Sheikh Jarrah for, so, for a long time. And usually less people join than what we're seeing right now. It's usually the people of the neighborhood, sometimes even solidarity activists. But when it comes to Palestinians from Jerusalem, less join Sheikh Jarrah. They're more focused on other areas of, contest, of contention. So people ask why now, it's not the right question to ask why now. The right question to ask is, this explosion was always inevitable because these policies, these Israeli policies of domestication, of fragmentation, of subjugation, and of disposition, uh, it's inevitable that we, they will yield resistance. And this resistance can take different forms. It's just that it's sometimes you sometimes things takes you things take you by surprise. And sometimes it's not even those who always say they're the, the most politicized. Sometimes it's the least politicized people who take because it's the, this sense of dignity. And this is, I think, I'm sorry, I've talked for so long, but this is one of the main fuel, the, the main fuel for what's what we're seeing now. This thing, this sense of dignity, this uh, absolute insistence that we can't be mortified and we can't be humiliated. We reject to be humiliated. And when you feel that people, they, no matter how they express it, that they just want to reclaim their dignity and their freedom, they will take to the streets. And, and, and this will always, as long as Israel continues its policies, and no matter how many budgets it will, it will dedicate to the eradication of Palestinian national consciousness and the erasure of Palestinian identity, these small acts and big acts of resistance, especially daily resistance that goes unseen on many occasions, will just continue to flourish and will just continue to explode, I mean, sometimes in the most unexpected of times. 
Thank you. What, what is what is really striking when I'm listening to you and thinking about how I, I see this covered in the international press and the Israeli press, when people are looking for, you know, why now, what is happening? And you see, you know, you see Israeli authorities demanding that Mahmoud Abbas stop ever stop it, right? Or that saying that Hamas is, is is egging it on. And you think, you know, Israel has done such a good job cutting off Jerusalem from the rest of, from Jerusalemites from the rest of the Palestinian population, cutting out the PA completely, you know, very effectively, but then wants to blame it when you have genuine grassroots popular, you know, upsurge of, of, of engagement like this. And it is, I, I should point out for folks who are watching this um, on social media or aren't, I mean, this is unarmed engagement. This is not, you know, when, when you know, Israel treats any Palestinian resistance as terrorism and, and, and you know, look at what's happening on the ground, watch the videos of people singing and clapping. Um, you know, the, the argument that this is some kind of organized um, political uh, tool, you know, where, or political parties or political actors, it just doesn't stand up to what we're seeing. And I think Bador has, has summed this up really, really powerfully and quite beautifully. Asila, I wanna turn to you and, and really maybe pull the camera out a little bit um, and talk about the international community which is starting to speak up a little bit. You know, you had the, the, the uh, consul from the UK speaking quite powerfully um, about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah a few days ago. We've had a few members of Congress speak out, not enough, but a few. What, what is the role of the international community, um, both for good and for bad in, in where we've gotten to today and potentially in, 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 in ensuring that this doesn't end up with more people um, kicked out of their homes? Yeah, um, so basically, as you said, there's been um, some action by the international community, be it at the European uh, EU level. Uh, but I would say that this action is very much inadequate. We've seen uh, in the past couple of months statements condemning uh, the illegal acts uh, uh, on, uh, committed by the Israeli occupying forces. Uh, we've seen uh, some uh, re representative offices visiting the people of Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, but I would like to highlight that uh, we talked about the evictions in 2009, right? And uh, since then, the position of the EU or the international committee has not changed. It's the same. It's condemnation statement. It's uh, saying this is illegal under international law. And uh, as Al-Haq, we've been trying to brief uh, e, um, diplomats at the EU, EU level. And uh, with, with me was present Mohammed Al-Kurd. He's one of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah, and he's very vocal and powerful in his messages. Uh, since his childhood, he's been uh, trying to advocate for uh, the rights of his family and the neighborhood of the Palestinian people. And in these briefings, Muhammad's message is very clear and the demands of the families, he's representing the families obviously, are very clear. They want concrete actions. They, they, okay, letter, letters of condemnation, statements of condemnation are, are fine, but they want concrete actions. They want pressure on Israel. In terms of the legality or the, the legal obligation of these states and what I was trying to highlight is that uh, this is also very obvious, third state or international community, since Israel is committing gross violations of human rights and international law, these law, uh, these uh, violations necessitates obligation on all states of the international community and all countries 
to act, first of all, not to recognize the illegal situation, uh, but also to positively cooperate to bring an end to the illegal situation. Now, cooperation in concrete measures uh, can take the form of sanctions. Um, as I said, since 2009, when we're just talking, focusing on Sheikh Jarrah specifically, but as we said, Sheikh Jarrah is the case of Palestine. These evictions happened in 2009. Nothing has happened. If the letter of condemnation, the statement of condemnation, is will still remain the the norm of the international community, the whole neighborhood. We're talking about 500 people uh, in Sheikh Jarrah at risk of having their uh, of being displaced, but also Jerusalem and whole Palestinian people. So uh, uh, the concrete actions uh, uh, in fulfillment toward their obligations under international law. Now is it it's necessary to to look at these countermeasures, which are not a favor to ask from the international community. As I said, it's an international obligation. Uh, uh, examples of such measures include the economic and diplomatic sanctions, uh, the uh, imposing an armed arm, arms embargo on the Israeli occupying forces as well. So I think at this time these pressure are very much needed to stop evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, but also uh, to stop the whole illegal situation in Palestine. Thanks. I, I think that, I mean, I think you laid it out really well. I mean, it, it's really hard looking at the situation. I can't believe we're saying today in 2021, this was true 20 years ago, and not seeing the international community's unwillingness to do more than the equivalent of, you know, thoughts and prayers. Um, it, it, it is it is complicity at a certain point. It is sending oh. a clear message to Israel that aside from a little bit of diplomatic kerfuffle, it's going to get away with whatever it does, and the Palestinians will just have to suffer. Um, that is, you know, you can sort of say the first time, well, we did our best, we didn't know, but after decades of seeing how this plays out, it, it really is hard to see how that isn't um, direct complicity, given given the degree of of active support the international community shows um, for Israel and other areas, um, but that's just my view. Um, but Dor, I wanna come back to you. I want to, and I'm gonna ask you both about this in different ways. I wanna talk about the question of justice, uh, which is a big, a big question. It's bigger than Sheikh Shara, but what would justice look like for the Palestinians in Sheikh Shara? And, and assuming that, that there was actual political will, whether in governments or at the grassroots level, and I think there's a lot of political at the grassroots level in the international community. How can the international community stand with Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah or in general on Jerusalem? Is it is it a matter of advocacy or funding the right organizations or you know, things like education seem far too long-term <laughs> to me to have much impact here. And, and are there any specific organizations that, that you think people should be following if they want to, to be effective allies? Yeah. Oh, the question of justice is a broad philosophical, historical, political question. It's definitely not just a legal question. And definitely when we talk about justice, we don't uh, deceive ourselves and even expect for a second that it's going to come from Israeli courts, obviously speaking, because we always, one of our chants is always, well, the, the high, it's in Israel, the Supreme Court is referred to as the High Court of Justice. For us, it's the High Court of Injustice. And I think I'm old enough now by this uh, age 
to know that when we when we were young and naive and innocent, we believe that if just we manage to go through, we can change the world through the use of law. First, probably locally and then even internationally. And this is why some of us decided to study international law, thinking that the international law will bring justice. It may bring a semblance of, a semblance of accountability, but accountability is not justice. I think we've heard this a lot in the Black Lives Matter discourse, and this is very powerful, that even if, if one police officer is prosecuted and is inducted or prosecuted and sentenced, this might be a semblance of accountability. It's definitely not justice to the families who this, who this uh, the, the person who this police officer killed, to, his, uh, fa- to the families of those who are killed by the police, and definitely not to the, uh, and a solution to the generational injustices that have been committed, neither in the United States nor in our context. Now, here in the Palestinian context, we forget about it. We don't even talk about even accountability when it comes to the Israeli crimes through Israeli courts, because we know, regardless of how these courts want to portray themselves as upholding law and uh, portraying themselves as some some sort of guardians of justice and liberal justices, especially in the Supreme Court, we know that at the end of the day, they fulfill a certain mission. And this mission is that to entrench Israeli colonization and Israeli control. Now, internationally speaking, if we want to talk specifically about certain cases, about legal, let's let's um, keep ourselves within the parameters or the boundaries of legal justice. First, yes, we you have the the case before the ICC. Now, I'm not a huge fan of international law in general. And I do think that it's very incredibly limited as a tool, but it's a tool nonetheless. And it's a tool that puts pre- puts real pressure on Israel. And the, the reaction of Israel to the decision of the ICC to recognize, to the chamber of the ICC to recognize that it does have a jurisdiction and, that it, and the eventual decision of the ICC to open an investigation into Israeli crimes. The Israeli response to it is telling this, all of these attacks and attempt to demonize, say that Israel does fear an investigation. And because Israel does fear it, it's regardless of how effective it's going to be, at least put pressure on Israel, make Israel feel that it's at least there, it's, it's not going to continue committing its crimes with absolute impunity as it has been doing for more than seven decades. So I think it's important to support the ICC investigation as um, as a minimum. I mean, it's just the, like, it's the, the least that they can do at least to support the ICC investigation if they're really concerned about the about the rule of law and uh, to and to acknowledge that what's if these evictions and displacements because eviction can be a very neutral deceptively neutral term if these eviction displacements are uh, material materialized is it's a war crime as is settlements, as are the uh, mass killings that we've, we saw in during the March of Return, as are the Israeli crimes that were committed against Gaza in 2014, as the, as the crime of apartheid. So if these crimes continue, at least Israel must know that it's, it's, it, it has, the, it risks the threat of being held accountable, that its officers can, its officials, including from its prime ministers to its uh, soldiers, to its officers, can travel freely. They, they should 
they should live under this, at least under this threat, even if no arrests are happen. Now, this is when it comes to legal justice, and, and it's very important, or at least legal, some sort of legal accountability. Now, when it comes to the broader definition of justice, I mean, this will require a whole reframing of the debate. We definitely can't keep repeating the same broken record of two states, of uh, borders, of let's just do certain, I mean, of certain just restitution, empty, empty terminology. We, we simply have to abandon this debate once and for, for all. Not only because the two-state solutions, in my opinion, it's never been credible in the first place as a solution, but not just because of that, even if it was concept conceived of at some stage, it's long bended and buried, it's funerals, Israel was the, the one who was responsible for holding its first funeral, basically. So we can't keep just caging ourselves in this nonsensical, in my opinion, debate. We really have to, to ask what, what justice means. What justice means for the refugees who were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and who were prohibited from returning to their land? What justice means for the president of Sheikh Jarrah, who goes to the western part of Jerusalem and sees his own home in Baqa and is unable to return to it, is unable to even approach it? What justice means for all those Palestinian refugees, for the internally displaced, for those who have lost loved ones? And obviously for us, it doesn't mean retaliation or reprisals, but it means real, real restitution. It means real reparations. It means right of return. It means opening, changing the whole parameters of the debate to make it a debate enshrined and established upon uh, decolonization, because really you can't just stay within and cage yourself within the boundaries of 1967 and, and after that. It's, it's impossible. Sheikh Jarrah encapsulates the fact that if you want to understand the Palestinian cause, you have to get way past way before 1967, even way before 1948. 1948 was the first, was the first uh, mass uh, crowning for Israel. Obviously, for us, it was the disastrous consequence of things that happened before, of policies that began before. So really, decolonization in the sense and, a, and, and building a, a truly, genuinely democratic country based not on religious supremacy or in ethnic supremacy, but based on the respects for universally uh, respected human rights for all, regardless of religious, gender, or nationality. This is, for me, this is what justice looks like. Justice looks like being able to walk wherever I want as a Palestinian without being, without living under the threat of the checkpoints and the threat of being attacked or harassed or bullied. It also means being able to build a country that respects everyone who lives in this country, that respects their right, that respects their freedoms, even if they were not born in the so-called wrong religion. And it also, and most importantly, it means listening to Palestinian voices.
And, and I'm very grateful to you for allowing us to speak because for so long, the whole debate, even those who have some good intention, when they want to hear what's going on, at the best cases, they will go and turn to either Israeli human rights organizations or international human rights organization. And perhaps the discussion of apartheid is one really proof of that because so many Palestinians have been saying certain things for decades, really, and no one is listening to us now when one Israeli organization or international organizations comes ahead and repeats what we've been saying for decades suddenly people at least start to listen now I know that it's not just about discourse and framing and discourse just one face of it it's just one small face of it really I mean our battle is much more important than just a battle over discourse but it does matter who you listen to and how you build and and draw your own narrative and when you're only allowed to and, and give space to Israeli organizations and give legitimacy to just when Israeli critics criticize Israel and just don't even prepare you yourself to listen to the more uncomfortable for some, because I know that our voices might appear like inconvenience for some. And this, this gives us a problem. So at least let's let's reclaim the discourse as Palestinians. That, that's just a first step. And listen from Palestinians how they perceive the future solution to be. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just one individual, really. Justice means different things to different people and to different individuals. And it's going, going to take a hell lot of struggle and just so much efforts to to know to do in order to know what really justice looks like what i do what i'm certain of is that justice can never be achieved in palestine without the recognition of the right of, the, of return and without decolonization thank you um and and i'm i want to say we're very honored to have your voices here um part of our our modus operandi at the foundation is recognizing the failures for many years to center Palestinian voices in these conversations, in these narratives. And we are consciously working to, to fix that. So um, it is not by accident um, that we're doing this today. Asil, I wanna give you an opportunity if you wanna add anything here on the question of justice. Um, also, and we're, we're gonna run over time, I'm gonna take the, uh, the luxury of being the chair to say, we're gonna give you the chance to, to add something here. Also, if you wanna talk about that, that's fine. If instead you wanna talk about maybe the next couple of weeks and what we are looking ahead to with Jerusalem day and the March of Flags and end of Ramadan and sort of, you know, the potential for, for an escalation um, in Jerusalem, which I think a lot of us are, are worried about. But this will be the last, the last word. Um. I very much agree with uh, everything Budur has said about uh, justice, but I do want to uh, stress on some points because I, I actually did my uh, master's thesis on transitional justice uh, because often much as Palestinians, as uh, Budur said, we are much trapped, forcibly trapped to, uh, to um, convince others of our, uh, the injustice that is going on currently. And we're not left with much space to think about the future of Palestine, right? So uh, what I try to do uh, when I uh, try to imagine uh, to look at the future of Palestine within the framework or the body of uh, transitional justice, uh, which basically is the body that looks about situation transitioning from 
uh, previous, uh, be it a war or a conflict or uh, transitioning from a democratic uh, regime uh, towards a new era where uh, a, a transition is going on and ushered in a justice manner. And there are many elements of a, or components of this trans transitional justice uh, field, including uh, the, the element of truth, and then uh, the element of accountability, which Budur also highlighted. Uh, there's also the, the reforms, uh, reparations, which also Budur highlighted, and guarantees of non-repetition. And when I looked at Palestine, I realized that uh, to, to have the first step, which is the truth or acknowledgement, this, this is not even acknowledged for the Palestinian people. Uh, we're not even there at the acknowledgement or truth. Uh, as Budur said, I'm sorry, as Budur said, uh, we have been also trapped in a discourse that has been maintained by uh, various actors, uh, including sometimes, unfortunately, the Palestinian political leadership, which frames the situation as a conflict uh, and, 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 uh, and limits the Palestinian territory to 22% of historic Palestine and also excludes the, the mass majority of the Palestinian people be it the Palestinian refugees abroad and exiled or Palestinian citizens of Israel from any future of Palestine. So basically this discourse that frames the situation as a conflict in the occupied Palestinian territory is very much problematic uh, because uh, we need to look at when we want to see the truth and to have acknowledgement for this truth, we need to go back into the history because Israel is a, um, an ongoing settler colonial state uh, the same, uh, not the same, but the same goal with different means and tactics have been used to uh, to implement this settler colonial regime uh, since 1948. And so the reclamation of this narrative from turning it uh, from a conflict paradigm into a colonial, settler colonial situation makes us also think about how we see the, the solution for this, for this, uh, for this problem. Instead of seeking peace process and conflict resolution mechanisms, we, we look at the situation as an anti-colonial movement. We are seeking decolonization. We're seeking all the elements that I listed. And in the case of Israel, reforms is not even uh, acceptable because we want to dismantle all these discriminatory laws and policies in terms of reparations uh, because Israel has the logic that all the Palestinians uh, should be displaced and eliminated, it does consider the Palestinian refugees by uh, public statements as a threat to the Israeli state. Uh, Palestinian refugees' right to return is, is a right. It's not a threat to the state. And if we dismantle this logic that controls all the policies and laws, then we can uh, provide with uh, reparations, including the right to return, that Budur has said, and the right to self-determination of the uh, of the Palestinian people. And uh, just to also conclude, I, I, I do believe the, the prosecutions uh, as one tool are important, but they cannot also ensure that an entire structure of power as a regime is, is prosecuted. It's only uh, the, the current investigation at the criminal court uh, will, will contribute to the, if, if it happens, to the uh, ending the cycle of impunity that uh, has, Israel has enjoyed for above 70 years, it will send a strong message that for the first time Israel is, is to be held accountable. But justice is more than that uh, for Palestinians. 
And law is just a tool and it has very much short, uh, like uh, it has, it is very much limited uh, uh, towards the liberation and decolonization of Palestine. And, and in order to arrive at this future, I think two important things need to be um, done. First of all, the Palestinian political leadership has a critical role in this regard because it has given up its role as an anti-colonial movement and liberation movement towards uh, into a movement that seeks state building without even the Palestinian people and uh, with with uh, with uh, on a state that is not uh, constitute only 22% of historic Palestine. So we want a political leadership that is calling for uh, our rights as a whole, not fragmented, and uh, including the right to return of refugees uh, and uh, also the rights of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. And we and not to men, not to repeat what I said about the international community's role. It is important that concrete measures are taken now, including sanctions, so that all this justice that Palestine and Sheikh Jarrah deserves uh, deserve is uh, is fulfilled. Thank you very much. Uh, and actually, thanks to both of you. We're going to close this out here. This was a very rich discussion. And with that, we will close this for today. And, uh, and thank you again. <laughs>